Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. Well, good morning. Are you excited to be in this house today? I know I am. This is just awesome. What a, what, a, what a great time of worship we just had. What a great time of being in God's presence together. I, I just love that. And, and I need to say this. October is over. I guess we had November last week and this week. How many think November is just going by so quick? Yeah. But I neglected to tell you at the end of October, I was a couple weeks behind. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you on behalf of all the pastoral staff here. Um, this church appreciated us above and beyond with cards, with gifts, with gift cards, with whatever, the prayers, just the encouraging words, all of it. We are just blessed beyond belief to be here. And I know every one of us feels that same way. So thank you, church, for loving us so much. We really appreciate that. I also want to just take a moment and and, uh, thank uh, our veterans today. You know, we just had Veterans Day and uh, praise God for them. And I, you clap too quick, but what our veterans stand, <laughs> all the veterans, whether, yeah, awesome. Give them a hand. Woo. Woo. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for your service to your country, and we do not take it for granted, the sacrifices that have been made so that we could be here today and worship the Lord in freedom. We don't take that for granted at all. Just wanted to take time to do those two things this morning. Well, we've been in this series uh, that we entitled Foodies, and as you know, most of you, that it's just really going through the book of Luke and pulling out every single time Jesus ministered when there was food involved, and it was a lot. And uh, I think that's why Christians do food so well um, today. And look around the room. Do we do food well? I mean, some of you felt like that was a put down, but it wasn't. He talked and taught so many things over the lunch table, the dinner table, over food. And we're going to look at this one uh, this morning. It was the Last Supper scene. And uh, it's in Luke 22, 14 through 20. So as we've done all through this series, would you stand up and let's read it together? All right, here we go. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Let it be planted deep in our hearts today, and let it bear fruit, God, within our very souls. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
You can be seated. So just some uh, foodie facts here uh, regarding this scene. Um, Jesus mentions, and we just read it, the Passover meal. He said, I have eagerly desired uh, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So what did Jesus mean by the Passover meal? And many of you know this, but I just wanted to be sure. You, you, you probably remember that in the book of Exodus, the, it, it really begins with the Hebrew people living within Egypt. They had left the land of promise, which had been given to their ancestral fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and just as a little side note for history, Abraham, you know, was given the, the promise of God. You know, how many know the song, Father Abraham, right? I, yeah, Father Abraham had many sons. He, he, was, he was the father, really, in, in the part, patriarchal father of the, uh, uh, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, right? And and this is just a little bit of a side note with kind of with what's going on in the world. Understand that he was promised a son, and that son would be a miracle birth. We, we've made this point before. He, he seemed a lot like Jesus because he was born of a miracle birth. He, I mean, Sarah was old when she had Isaac, right? And this was promised to Abraham that his, his descendants would be as numerous as the, the stars in the sky. And, and Abraham got tired of waiting as they got older. And so what did he do? He took his wife's maidservant, Hagar, and they had a son together, and his name was Ishmael. And why I just bring that out is because the Arab world is the descendants of Ishmael. The Jewish world is the descendants of Isaac. They had the same father, but it's interesting that we're still having issues in the world with that family issue that happened so long ago. But anyway, we know that Isaac then had 12 sons, or he had Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. And 11 of those sons, um, they uh, went to Egypt to survive a great famine that had come upon the land. And of course, they found Joseph there. That was their other brother, uh, the brother that the 10 oldest had sold into slavery years previous. They sold Joseph into slavery. And so they went to Egypt. Joseph welcomed them in. I'm going over a lot of stuff here really quick. And, and he took in them in. He provided for them as a people. And it was a lot of people. All of their wives, maidservants, servants, all the children, all of their herds and their flocks, all their possessions, they took them in during this famine. And years went by, and the pharaohs, which, which ruled Egypt, became increasingly aware that these Israelites were multiplying and eventually could overtake them as a nation. And they didn't like that. It made them nervous. So the Egyptians forced them into slavery, as you know, many of you know, and the state of Israel began uh, being enslaved. Um, they weren't a state, per se. I don't mean that politically, but their, their, their position was that they were enslaved as a nation. And it lasted 400 years. They longed for their homeland, and they cried out to God who heard them, and he raised up Moses who delivered the message of the Lord to the Egyptian ruler, let my people go. So you know where we're at, right? This is what's going on. Of course, Pharaoh, being the leader of the most powerful nation in the world at that time, refused. Re imagine politicians, powerful politicians not listening. <laughs> Some things never change. So God began to bring plagues on them, plagues designed to show the power of the one true God over any of their false gods. 
and to ultimately force Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, but Pharaoh refused. Then the final plague was sent. This was a plague in which every firstborn child and firstborn of all the flocks and herds would be put to death. But God told Moses to tell his people, and this is so important, take the blood of an unblemished lamb and spread the blood on the doorposts of your house and your firstborn will be passed over. Those that believed the word of the Lord, those who responded in faith, who actually did what the Lord said, were spared. The death of so many was more than Pharaoh could take, and so he let the Hebrews go. And if you've ever attended one of our Good Friday experiences, uh, one of the first rooms that you entered portrayed a Passover or a Seder meal, and many of the prophetic elements that the foods um, that are surrounding those foods that are traditionally served. You may remember that the Hebrews had to leave quickly, and I'm just going to bring a couple of these out. And, and can I just say this? Talking about um, the, uh, the, all the details, all the dots that you can, can, can connect when it comes to um, the blood of Jesus, the Passover meal, all of that is rolled together. And when you start studying it all out, there is no end to, to the amount of truth that, that comes forth. You could spend a lifetime studying it and never get to the bottom of it. So I just got to tell you, I'm very, I feel very inadequate even talking about it this morning because there's just so much. And I can't tell you it all because I don't know it all. None of us do. And at the same time, there's just not enough time to even really get into it. But I wanted to give you a couple things. And you might have remembered this from our Good Friday experience, um, that the Hebrews had to leave quickly when Pharaoh let them go, so quick that their bread didn't have time to rise. They, so they were instructed to make bread free from all leaven or yeast. It was grilled. They, they, would, they grilled it, which created stripes on it, and it was pierced to get rid of any air pockets in the bread. And that, that's the matzah bread that you think of today that many of you know and have, have even tried. The Passover feast, it was created to commemorate these events so that God's people would always remember how he rescued them from their slavery. And it's still observed by Jews today. Also, it, it has so many biblical types. There's so many foreshadowings into what would be and what will be. Our observance of communion, you have to understand, is rooted in much of what this Passover meal points to. So that, that's, that's the Passover meal. It was a commemorative meal. Excuse me, a commemorative meal that, that helped the Israelites remember what God had done for them way, way back in Egypt when he delivered them from slavery. And it was through the blood of the lamb on the doorposts that they were delivered from that night where all the firstborn were dead, were killed. So what is communion? Another foodie fact. What, what do we mean by communion? The King James Version of the Bible uses the word communion four times. And every time it's translated from the original Greek word koinonia. So everybody say koinonia. 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 And koinonia is translated into the word that we would normally say fellowship or contribution, communion, distribution, communication. It's that, it's that word that kind of encompasses it all. It's an extremely important word in the church today. And it literally means community, joint participation, the sharing of anything that one might have, the participation in receiving what one might have. Did you catch that? We share everything and we receive things from one another. I think I've been in churches before where there were people who, who they wanted to give, but they could not receive from anybody because they had maybe too much pride. Do you know that 
Maybe, I don't even know how to say this properly, so forgive me, but do you know that there are people who won't receive prayer from other people because they think of themselves as above them? Communion, community, koinonia, would say, I can receive from anybody, I can freely give to anybody. It's an interesting concept. It's the essence of true fellowship. And the church should strive to be the very embodiment and definition of koinonia. People need community. They absolutely do. COVID should have taught us that beyond a shadow of a doubt, right? You lock people down, they go crazy. We need each other. And people love being at the bars because of koinonia. Is that true? I mean, sometimes you go by on a Friday night, you're like, whoa, that bar is packed. Wish the church on Friday night, wish the parking lot at the church looked as full on Sunday morning as the bar parking lots do sometimes on Friday and Saturday night. But it's because there's koinonia there. They experience some form, at least some measure of koinonia, true fellowship. People love going to the ball fields and the gymnasiums on the weekends, largely because of koinonia. I, you know, sometimes I, I, I used to think, well, they're just trying to be good parents and follow their kids all over the place. They're, you know, we got all these, all these things going on, on on the weekends, right? These traveling teams and everything. But I don't think it's so much about being a good parent because how many know you take your kid, you hardly see your kid. Your kid's pr- doing their thing and you're up in the stands getting a backache and a rear end ache because um, <laughs> bleachers are no fun to sit on, right? And the older you get, the worse it is. Now they've even got those comfy chairs. Anybody have one of those? You bring them along and... It's BYOC, bring your own chair or something. I don't know. But anyway, um, I think and I believe that a lot of people go and are excited about going. As much as it's fun to see your kids compete and all that, your grandkids compete, I think it's about the koinonia that they find in the stands. Like-minded people, they get to talk, they get to share. They're sitting there, they're not at work, and they're enjoying some time with one another. We are created for koinonia. We're built that way. And we desire it in our innermost parts, whether we know it or not. I mean, you can be the person who says, oh, I'm, I'm a, uh, an island unto myself, and I, I just want to put, a, put a, a, a rope or a chain across my driveway and not let anybody in my life just close the doors. And... But you weren't created that way. God created you for koinonia. And sometimes we get that way because we get, uh, we get critical because we've been hurt so much. It doesn't change the fact that you need people and people need you. It doesn't change the fact. Unfortunately, the world sometimes does koinonia better than the church does. I've often said that a large portion of a pastor's job is to just listen to people and that's really not all that different from a bartender's job. I mean, I get to do more stuff than that. I get to preach the word and all those kinds of things. But when you think about it, there's some similarities. And when you talk about communion within the Christian church, you know, generally you're talking about the ceremony of taking the bread and the wine as a remembrance of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Some church groups are, are very formal with this. Some are more casual. Some have communion every time they meet, while others do it monthly or quarterly throughout the year. But the point of it, the purpose of it, is wrapped up in this word koinonia. And I don't want you to forget that. 
Koinonia is communion. It is. It's that relationship. It's that fellowship. And in our scripture today, we see Jesus giving us the example of how to do communion. He also gives us the command to do it in remembrance of him. The Apostle Paul was also given instructions from Christ himself on how we were to take communion together. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this, is the cup, this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Notice that Paul says that he received this information from the Lord, and he is now passing it on to the church. In other words, this is how it needs to be done. And it's, it's Unbelievable, as I said just a minute ago, when you start unpacking the truths in reference to the Jewish Passover meal and the ordinance and practice of taking communion as Christians, that there's so many dots to connect between the two of them. It's just unreal. Matzah bread had no leaven or yeast. I talked about that a second ago. Our communion bread is unleavened bread. And this signifies no sin because Jesus, the bread of life himself, was without sin. He died pure. Like when he was put on the cross, he was the only one who could ever, ever pay that sacrifice because he lived a life here on this earth and he never sinned in thought, in deed, in action. That's something. That's something. He's the only one that could have ever done that. And when yeast is mentioned in the Bible, it's generally referring to sin. In Luke 12, 1, Jesus told his disciples to be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Sin is like leaven or yeast in that it works through the whole batch of dough and it grows. Sin grows within your heart as you let it sit there and it, it, it just begins to take over if you don't get a hold of it. Paul said to the church in Corinth, um, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8, he says this, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Notice how he compares Christ to the Passover lamb that was slaughtered and then the blood of that Passover lamb was put on the doorpost of your heart or on, on the doorpost, physical doorpost. Jesus' blood is put on the doorpost of our heart. Similar, so many connections. Verse 8 says, therefore, let us keep the festival the Passover, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It should also be understood that the wine served at this first communion in Luke was not fermented wine. Yeast is used in that process of fermentation, and it would have not, allowed, it would not have been allowed in the house during a Passover time during the Passover meal at all. The fruit of the vine is merely grape juice when not fermented. But of course, it can be wine if it contains alcohol, which it would have to be fermented. So when Jesus served that wine, it was not a fermented drink. It was not alcoholic. It was just grape juice. The blood of Jesus is the most precious substance. And we sang about it so much today. It's the most precious substance to have ever existed on this earth. Surely, its representation by wine would also mean that the specific wine used in that first communion was free from yeast and fermentation. 
Jesus also took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The blood of Jesus poured out, spilled out, as he willingly sacrificed himself on the cross. This was, you have to realize, this was the king of kings talking, right? The word of God in the flesh, the creator himself, and he went like a lamb led to slaughter because he is of his love for you and for me. When that blood was shed, the new covenant began. No longer would God's people have to shed animal blood for the forgiveness of sins. This was a once and for all, nothing could outdo it, and nothing would ever have to be done again kind of sacrifice. This was it, the ultimate. The matzah bread that was made in haste or made quickly without leaven, it had burn marks, and the type of grill they used made stripes on the bread itself. Jesus endured stripes on his back when he was whipped with the cat of nine tails. The matzah bread was pierced to make sure that it was unleavened. We know that Jesus was pierced in his side by a soldier when he hung on the cross. There are so many connections, church, as you start reading this stuff and you meditate on it and you go back, back in Exodus and read about the Passover and you go back forward into the New Testament and you start reading about the, the, the Last Supper and, and communion in general and how Paul administered it and, and how Jesus talked about it. There's so many connections it makes the Bible come alive. Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was wounded, some versions say pierced, for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And I, I think about these things. He's the bread of life. I mean, without sin, it's unleavened bread. This is a picture of what we do at communion and why we do it the way we do it and why the elements are used that are used. So where's the, the beef in all this, as we've said so much in this series? We refer to communion as an ordinance of the church. And in the Assemblies of God, we recognize two holy ordinances, water, baptism, and communion. We call them ordinances because they are religious practices that were ordained by Christ himself. Jesus told us to do these things. And of course, the ordinance of communion should be understood by everyone before they partake of it. Jesus instituted communion during the last meal he would have with his disciples until the kingdom of God had fully come. We read that. I think he said it twice in Luke, in the portion of scripture we read in Luke. So Jesus began to teach them some of the most important things that he could teach them before he was put to death. And he starts with the table of remembrance, communion. So number one, communion is all about koinonia. It's all about koinonia. And A, remembering our koinonia with God. Second Peter 1, 3 through 4, as you take communion, you've got to remember this koinonia thing that you have with the Lord. Second Peter says this, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. You see, we have communion with God through the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. That's what the bread and the wine signify, this communion that we have with him, this koinonia that we get to have with him. We can have a relationship with him because of what he did on the cross. 
And it goes beyond just being friends with God. I think it's great if people are friends with God. How many are glad you're a friend of God? Right? I think it's wonderful, but it goes even beyond that. This scripture says we can participate in his divine nature. I want you to think about that for a second. We get to, because of the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ, we get to participate in the divine nature of God himself. That's, that's amazing. That might even be worth an amen. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's amazing. That means that his divine nature can be what comes naturally for us. His divine nature can become what naturally happens for us. Like that's what we just go to when, when, we, when, when this old nature gets pushed down and the new nature becomes alive and gets fed like it should get fed. We get to participate. We're born with a sinful nature. We can all relate to that. Before we understood and received what, what, what the Lord has given us through, through his son's sacrifice on the cross, our, our sinful nature um, is, is what came naturally for us to do. We just, that came naturally, our sinful nature. We followed it, we obeyed it, and, we let, and it led us down the road of destruction for many of us. And even though it still shows up and tries to take over once in a while, how many have ever experienced that? The old sinful nature comes up and it tries to take over. Anybody driving down the highway and someone cuts you off and the old sinful nature comes back? Just for a millisecond? A little road rage? Somebody says to you something at work and the old sinful nature wants to come. Maybe you get a little angry. I just keep going about angry things, don't I? It could be other things too. Maybe somebody walks up to you and starts gossiping. The old sinful nature wants to jump in and gossip along with them. And that's where you need to cut it off. The old sinful nature does try to rear its ugly head once in a while. We know that. We've all experienced that. But we are no longer bound to it because of what Jesus did on the cross. We're not bound to that. We're not enslaved to it any longer. Do you realize the blood of that sacrificial lamb at Passover saved the Israelites from slavery? Our sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, and his shed blood saves us from our slavery to sin. Do you understand the ramifications of that? We no longer have to live according to the sinful nature. We get to live according to God's divine nature. And not because we're so good. Not because we earned it or deserve it. It's just because his blood is that powerful to cover our sins and make the guilty innocent in a second. The power of his blood is absolutely unbelievable. It creates the very communion that we can have with God, the koinonia that we desperately long for. We're no longer bound to the sinful nature. We can participate in the new nature and it's the divine nature of Jesus Christ. We have communion and fellowship with God. We have community with him. The sharing of what he has and what he has given us, we can give back to him. 
And church, this is the void in people's lives all over this world. They have this hole within them. It's like this vacuum within, within, inside of them and something's missing and they try to fill the hole. They try to fill it up with anything they can just to feel some fulfillment and we have the answer. His name is Jesus Christ and it's a relationship with him that you need that will fill every hole you could ever have, ever. People long for that koinonia with their creator. Revelations 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, no matter what they've done, no matter where they've been, no matter what they've been into, no matter anything in their past, if they hear his voice and open the door, Jesus says, I will come into him and, and, and eat with him and he with me. Communion. Koinonia. And food, once again. Koinonia with God himself. That's what we have through the shed blood of Jesus. Fellowship, community, belonging. Everything we could ever want. So we remember our koinonia with God, but we also remember our koinonia with one another, point B. In his letter to the Corinthian church, Paul gives some pretty pointed correction and instruction in reference to how they were treating the ordinance of communion. It was supposed to be something that everyone in the church could come together on and enjoy with one another. In unity, they were supposed to partake of the communion elements and remember how they were bound together in Christ. Instead, in that church, they were missing the whole point. 1 Corinthians 11, 20 through 22 says this, and I'm reading in the message version. I just wanted to bring it out a little differently than I normally have in the past, but it says, and then I find that you bring your divisions to worship. Paul says, you come together, and instead of eating the Lord's Supper, you bring in a lot of food from the outside and make pigs of yourselves. He's pretty pointed here. Some are left out and go home hungry. Others have to be carried out, too drunk to walk. I can't believe it. Don't you have your own homes to eat in? Why would you stoop to desecrating God's church? Why would you actually shame God's poor? I never would have believed you would stoop to this, and I'm not going to stand by and say nothing. He goes on to say in verses 33 and 34, so my friends, when you come together to the Lord's table, be reverent and courteous with one another. If you're hungry, if you're so hungry that you can't wait to be served, go home and get a sandwich. I love that. But by no means risk turning this meal into an eating and drinking binge or a family squabble. It is a spiritual meal. It's a love feast. We are to be one body. We are all one body because he gave his own body. We can be one in purpose and, and we can have commonality and community because we have all accepted and experiencing, experienced his purchasing us with his blood. We've all experienced that. We all needed that. You know, there's nobody in this room that's better than anybody else because we all needed his blood. It's the, it, it levels everything out. And your wealth doesn't matter and your power doesn't matter. Your shortcomings don't matter. None of it matters. We're level. It, it's something about taking communion together that just levels the, the whole church, the body, so that we can all be one. It's unifying. It's incredibly unifying. 
We can be one in purpose and have one in commonality and community because we have all accepted and experienced his purchasing us with his shed blood. We are family. We're family. Go find someone you don't like and tell them you're family. No, I'm not going to make you do that. <laughs> but would you turn to your neighbor and just say, you're family. Some of you actually are family, <laughs> genetically speaking. But we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're family. And I, Pastor Jared prayed for a couple of men in, our, in the hospital this morning, and y you know, when part of the body hurts, we hurt, right? So... Don, you're in pain. We, we feel pain for you, buddy. Let me look in the camera. You're probably watching on your phone right now. We love you, Don. We love you, Lloyd. We're family. That's koinonia. It's communion. It's community. And let's be honest. There, there are those who long for community. They long for that fellowship that God offers, and they become part of the church out of their own need for koinonia, and that's great as long as they also allow the Lord to change them from the inside out. I, I, I feel like I need to give a little bit of caveat to this koinonia thing because everybody wants a friend, everybody wants a family, everybody wants koinonia, and church can be the gathering house of that. But you know what Jesus does when you have koinonia with him? And you know what the body does when you have koinonia with them? They begin to be like iron sharpening iron. You see, I need some of you as family members, to help rub off the rough edges that are on me. And in the very same time you're doing that, I'm rubbing the rough edges off of you because we're different. And no one's better. Some people don't like that. Some people feel like that's, oh, that's being judgmental, and there, there's lines that can be crossed, there's no doubt. When, when churches look down on people because they might be a little rougher in their lifestyles and things. And I'm not talking about blatant sin or anything like that. I'm just, I'm just talking about the rough edges. We all got them, right? How many got a rough edge? Sandy, you got a lot of them. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm only kidding. We all have a lot of them. We all do. But if you're just coming to church or finding a church or jumping into a group of people that love Jesus because you need the koinonia, but you have no intention to change from the inside out, let him change you from the inside out or have those rough edges removed or, or kind of shaped off over time, guess what? You're not going to enjoy church. And you're not going to enjoy a relationship with Jesus because it's all about change. There does have to become that. There does have to be that point where he accepts you, absolutely. He loves you. He takes you just as you are, but then he begins to work with you. And you've got to be willing to let him work with you. I think that's important. He goes on to say in verses, uh, uh, actually, we're not going to even go there. I'm going to skip that. Um, you can't just be about wanting and needing the church community. It's certainly attractive, it's a drawing factor, but Jesus draws us in to change us. He loves us so much that he doesn't want us to continue down the road of being involved with things that will cause 
destruction as we go down those paths. He wants to change us and help us. He loves us that much. And you know, I, the only thing I can compare it to, can compare it to is uh, when, when my girls were young and real young, like two years old, and they'd take off running and you'd say, stop, and they wouldn't stop. Has anybody ever experienced that? Um, and it's toward a road and there's cars coming by, you know. What do you do? You run after them and you grab them and you save them from the traffic. But then, at least if you're me, you give them a good pop on the butt for not listening because next time you might not be there. And you want them, you don't hurt them, I'm not saying that, but you make them realize they did wrong, they were disobedient. So that when you say stop next time, they, right? Now you're going to be mad at me because I believe in spanking. <laughs> Nope. <laughs> Some of you in here could have used a lot more spankings. I'm just saying that when you're growing up. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't have got any more than I got because I got them all the time. So just saying. So one, we have to remember koinonia. Koinonia with God and koinonia with one another. Two, we must properly discern the body of Christ. Simply put, this means to self-examine and rid ourselves of unrighteousness before we receive communion. And how do we, get our, how do we rid ourselves on, of unrighteousness? First of all, understand that the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all unrighteousness. But there is something to the point that we must confess our sins to him. It's not that just automatically everybody's sins are always forgiven and you can take communion whenever you want. But when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of those sins, right? Now, how many know that he already knows you sinned? And so what's the point of confessing if he already knows? You're not informing him that you sinned. You're informing him that you know that you sinned. And it's an act of humility. There's something about going to the Lord in his presence and saying, Lord, I blew it again. And I need your forgiveness once again. And he is faithful and just to forgive us in that moment when we have a right heart. See, I, I, I just can't get away from this. There is no such thing as salvation without repentance. Amen. Repentance is key. It's key. We confess our sins to the Lord and to one another when it's appropriate to do so. If you've offended someone with your sinful words or actions, then asking them to forgive you is necessary. If your words or actions have offended God or, or have gone against his word or his very nature, then you need to ask him for forgiveness. Properly discerning his body is recognizing that as a member of his body, you need to be walking in holiness. You need to be in that state of being forgiven. You need to have that humility in place where you've confessed it to the Lord and maybe even to somebody that you've needed to ask forgiveness for, from. And before taking communion, you should wipe the slate of your life clean, so to speak. Again, this is done through confession. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Now, please don't take that as a condemning word like, well, you're not worthy to take communion. Guess what? None of us are. 
That's why we confess our sins to him. And then because of the, his shed blood and the mercy and grace that he has for us, we are made clean in a moment. We are set free once again. And he just washes it away and we're pure before God. And when he looks at us, and I love the way uh, Pastor Calloway used to say this, he, God takes his glasses off, he dips them in the blood of Jesus, and then he looks at us through rose-colored lenses. He sees us without sin. He sees us without sin. He sees us as righteousness because of the blood. It's an amazing thing. Paul says it this way. What you must solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and actions the death of the master, referring to Jesus. You will be drawn back to this meal again and again, meal referring to communion, again and again until the master returns. You must never let familiarity breed contempt. Like, don't get so used to doing it all the time that it doesn't mean anything to you anymore. I know all about that. I was raised in a liturgical church. We went every Sunday. We opened our mouth. We, we took communion every single Sunday, and pretty soon it didn't mean a whole lot. There's people in that church where it means something to them every, day of the, every time they do it, and that's fine. But for me, it just got old. I want to know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it in church. And when I'm taking communion, it's a serious deal. I love the fact that when I was raised in that liturgical church, that, that there was a holiness brought to it. And sometimes we miss that, don't we? We get flippant with it. Like, it's the P.S. at the end of a message sometimes. I've been asked, why don't we take communion more often? Because I want it to be special. I want it to mean something. And we can take it more, that's fine. I'm not arguing that. But, but I want it to be special. And I want us, when we take it, to realize what we're doing. He says this, and this is part of the reason. He says this, going on in verse 27 and 28. Anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the master irreverently is like part of the crowd that jeered and spit on him at his death. Is that the kind of remembrance you want to be a part of? Examine your motives. Test your heart. Come to this meal in holy awe. If you give no thought, or worse, don't care, about the broken body of the master when you eat and drink, you're running the risk of serious consequences. That's why so many of you, even now, are listless and sick, and others have gone to an early grave. If we get this straight now, we won't have to be straightened out later. Better to be confronted by the master now than to face a fiery confrontation later. I mean, that's pretty strong words. That's in the message version. It's a paraphrased uh, version of the Bible. But I love how it says it. We are to solemnly approach the ordinance of communion with humility in our hearts and our spiritual eyes wide open as to As to the things that we've done, the things we've said, the sins that maybe we've just had in our thoughts, we have to do some serious introspective examination. And not so that we can walk in condemnation of how bad we are. It's not about remembering how bad we are. It's about remembering how good he has made us to be as we confess our wrongdoings and sinful attitudes to him. I've, always, I've been doing this take-home box thing and how do we apply all this? And today, it, 
as our takeaway, I want us to take communion. And I want us to take it with these things in mind. Let's remember our koinonia with God and with one another. And how that fellowship and community we have with God and one another is only possible through Christ's broken body and shed blood. And let's remember to discern his body as we take it, to remember that we are all members of his body and we have a responsibility to him and to one another to walk in holiness by continually confessing our sins to him and to one another when it's needed. We are one in and through the Holy Spirit of Christ. Let's honor him this morning by taking some time right now and loving on one another. And what I want you to do, I ended early on purpose. I want you to walk around and give some hugs, give some encouragement, to love on one another a little bit this morning, to tell each other how much you appreciate each other. And I just want to say, I appreciate you. I love every single one of you. Even if you don't like me, I still love you. And uh, let's, just, let's just have a time here for the next few minutes of the body loving on the body, right? God bless you. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.